Hello and welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Cheryl Murray Powell. Welcome, Cheryl. Hey, Kira. Welcome. Welcome. Super excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire is an agricultural and cannabis attorney named one of the top 12 cannabis attorneys in Florida by the Daily Business Review. She is the former executive director of the Black Farmers and Agriculturalists of Florida and former director of federal affairs for the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Cheryl also serves as the vice president of business development of Cannabisiac, South Florida's first incubator, accelerator, and co-working community catering solely to cannabis-related businesses. Cheryl is on the Hemp Pilot Program Advisory Board for the University of Florida. She's also president of the consulting firm Green Sustainable Strong. In her spare time, she volunteers with the Win Rock Foundation, delivering marketing training to farmers in Ghana, Africa. In 2018, she was a recipient of the Crohn's Foundation Blood, Sweat, and Tears Award and the Cannabis Business Awards Industry MVP Award. As a canapreneur, Cheryl is the president of the Canna Headhunters, a staffing agency in the cannabis industry that connects cannabis talent to opportunities. Wow. Thank you so much for making time in your very busy schedule to sit down with us. Not a problem at all, Kira. You and I have been friends for a long time. I've been following your work. I'm, I'm definitely a super fan of yours, and it's an honor to sit here and, and share this audience with you. It, well, it's very, very mutual. I am a super fan of yours as well. And one of the reasons I am a super fan of yours is because you bring to the table something that is very unexpected and your take on the industry is one that is so positive. It's so optimistic. There's so much generosity in what it is that your your mission is in this industry. So I really want to spend some time going over that today. And one of the things that I have was is really unexpected is for a woman of color to be so active in agriculture. And so I'd love to hear about how you got your start in agriculture and then how that led you to be an activist for hemp and cannabis. And what is it what is it like to be a woman of color in agriculture? Yeah, I mean that's that's a really interesting topic because and I, I don't get asked about that a lot. So um, I actually started in cannabis first and then ended up in agriculture. It's usually the other way around. Um, however, I, um, when I started, when I, when I passed the bar, I started practicing in some other areas and, and you know, I spiritually led to, to cannabis as an area of practice. It wasn't something I even knew existed. Um, and then I was, I just felt it in my spirit. Um, look at cannabis law and I started researching and then I just haven't looked back since then. Um, I always say that I went to my first event to listen and then I was speaking at my second event and I haven't stopped speaking ever since. Um, so I, 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 I've tried to establish myself as a global figure, not specific to the United States. So that journey has been 
interesting and costly. Um, but with regards to agriculture, which is definitely a love of mine, um, when I was um, started out with the cannabis industry and um, I, I saw that there was a disparity with regards to um, diversity and um, people of color, specifically black farmers, black um, women being engaged in the industry and, and respected in the industry. And I know um, that the um, you know, illicit industry was very different. And then the penalties uh, paid by those who participated in the illicit industry saw disparities in the other direction with regards to um, an overpopulation of um, prisons with black and brown bodies. So I, I made it part of my mission to really work on the diversity um, component of, of what the industry looks like um, to encourage people who look like me, who have an um, extra amount of melanin to get involved. As a result of that, I started going out to black farmers conferences. I think it was literally me saying, like going and Googling black farmers conference. And that's when I found out about the Tuskegee University um, conference, which at that point was 125 years old. Wow. Yes, really significant. Um, when, when the Tuskegee University started their Black Farmers Conference, they had to get permission to have the Black Farmers Conference. It had to be vetted uh, to make sure it's not, it wasn't a congregation of, of Black people to stage some type of um, coup or, or um, overthrow um, or, or more focused on um, civil justice issues. Um, so they had to um, get approval to, to come into a centralized area from across the country and meet. Um, so yes, at that point, which is probably probably about three years or four years past that now, it was 125 years. So I was astounded by the legacy and history of one, you know, uh, Tuskegee University, which has, um, you know, legends such as um, uh, Booker T. Washington as, as former uh, leadership and, and administration for the for the university. They're still an agricultural university, and I have um, strong relationships with them at this point. So um, that's how I learned about agriculture. Is I went to the conference with, you know, I think a, a significant amount of hubris, like I'm going to educate these black farmers on cannabis and get them involved and let them know that the stigma is going away and and that we need to reduce the stigma in our community and um, that let them know that it's legal now. So, you know, all the trauma and the, you know, previous records of people being assassinated or people being incarcerated as a result, they won't find that if they approach it from a legal perspective. Um, so that was my mission. Um, when I got there, I achieved my mission. I started having those conversations, answering questions, but then I looked at the full agenda for the conference and I realized how much I had been missing. And there were some amazing educators, academics um, that were educating farmers, farmers peer educating other farmers. And I had, I didn't have any knowledge. So I started to sit into the, in, in the sections and learn. I, I approach, I changed from a, I'm going to tell them how they can get involved to a, let me get into a learning posture. And that's how I um, shifted into the area of agriculture and found that, um, you know, this is an area I love. When I, when I looked around the room, I found that, you know, everybody was older than me, uh, for the most part, aging farmers. Um, I also found that there were maybe there maybe one or two other lawyers in the room. 
of um, you know hundreds of, of black farmers. So I really did uh, had to reflect at that point and see where I could be of, mo of the best use um, as an attorney. Um, and, and I've been back ever since um, for the Tuskegee University Conference, uh, as well as the Professional Agricultural Workers Conference, which is another conference which is about now probably about 80 years old, um, that also done by Tuskegee University. So there was a significant learning opportunity. And what, once I started getting involved with ag, I, I embraced the science. I embraced the science of cannabis more, and I embraced the science of, you know, how do we get to a precision agriculture environment in the black community? How do we encourage the next generation to consider farming? How do we um, encourage our other professions to build relationships with farmers so that um, farmers can optimize what they're doing? And as a result, I came up with my grow to ship um, strategy for organizations and governments that support farmers, specifically um, small minority and resource limited farmers. And um, I've been speaking on uh, that proprietary uh, strategy quite a bit recently. Um, trying to bridge the gap between, you know, traditional agricultural methods, even some indigenous agricultural methods, and looking at innovation and technology, um, as well as precision agriculture. Can you give us a little more about what precision agriculture means? Yes, when, when you talk about precision agriculture, it's integrating um, technological advances and, and machinery, um, I would say even to the point of robotics now, um, uh, drones as well, um, in order to optimize crop results and crop outcomes. So you're going to start hearing a lot more if you haven't already about the use of drones, especially in hemp fields, whether it's counting plants, identifying pests, um, identifying disease, um, identifying male plants in some respects. Um, so we're, we're getting more technological. You know, farmers are, you know, um, driving tractors from their, their iPads um, now. So, um, you know, in, in rural America, and it's recognized by the USDA, um, you know, sometimes we have some literacy issues. We definitely have uh, issues with access to internet. And there's a, a, a huge divide when you consider how farmers can access resources, who has the ability to access those resources, and um, the issues with technologies for farmers. So to give you an example, and I, I worked um, for a brief time as the Director of Federal Affairs for the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. And in that time, I inhaled all the information I could. I was at, every, I went to as many of their offices as possible, spoke to as many people as possible, went to as many farms in Florida as possible. And um, in, in that time learning, I discovered that you know, if there is a grant available from the USDA or a program available to the USDA, you know, how is it communicated to our farmers? Usually it's on social media from the department or it's um, uh, on their website. And for those farmers that, you know, and legit, like seriously, this is real. There are some farmers that are not even comfortable with texting. Like even if they had a flip phone, not comfortable with texting. And, and I saw that in my own community, but even beyond that. So how do you assist those farmers? So when um, the USDA in 2019 had a program 
uh, called the Market Facilitation Program. And it was, it's a great subsidy program designed to assist farmers of certain commodities um, because of the tariff situation. Because as you know, the USA and, and China were in like a little bit of a tariff war. Um, so to compensate for those losses, there was this great program uh, put together in the Market Facilitation Program. But how do you apply for the Market Facilitation Program? You can't, you could have gone to your FSA office, but you also, a lot of the information was transmitted electronically through eBlast, through the USDA website, through the State Departments of Agriculture's websites. And, um, you know, there are some farmers that if they're not a part of a farmer organization, they'll never get the org they'll never get the information. And even when you look at commissioners of agriculture and how they um, communicate, like if there's a change happening or they're going looking for feedback, they'll usually like I know in Florida they call them the big six, like um, you know the cattlemen's group, the citrus farmers, etc. But those large organizations they'll have regular counsel with them, but often negated is that interaction with the black farming organizations or or smaller farm groups or farmers let's say you're a tomato farmer but you can't afford to pay the dues to be a part of that tomato farming organization so when we look at information cascading okay we put it on the usda website but some people aren't going on the usda website nor have they signed up for eat less and we put it on the Florida or Florida or whatever state Department of Agriculture website and their social media. But you have farmers who never check social media. They don't even have accounts. They may not even have an email account. Um, so how do you get information out to those farmers? In theory, you can tap like your large farming organizations by commodity, the peanut farmers, the you know tomato farmers, the citrus farmers, or soybean, whatever. However, there are some farmers that don't get involved with those organizations because they can't afford the fees. So part of the work that we have to do um, when it comes to food justice, there's the consumer food justice and, and then there's the um, and food sovereignty. And then there's also the producer food justice, which is how making sure it's not just a check in the box. Oh, we communicated this great program that can help them with their, um, their, their funding and the subsidies, but making sure that it lands the way that you expect it to, making sure that the, all the farmers that reply to the USDA census, which happens every what, five years, that they have been touched with this information. Um, mailing is costly. Um, so it's really um, encouraging, um, you know, the, one, the FSA, um, to do more. And like I've recently had interactions with the FSA and I've had great experience, but you know, I'm, I understand technology. I knew to go on their website, get the email address for the, per the director, email the director and say, Hey, I'd like to file for the farm and track number for, for this particular plot where I'm going to be growing hemp. But for a, a rural farmer, they may have been farming for years, multi-generations and never formed an entity they may have never applied for a farm and tract number. They have never may have never gone into the FSA office, or if they went, it was 20 years ago, and they were treated like uh, very disrespectfully. Because as we know, there was the Pickford lawsuit about how um, black farmers had been treated. So when you've been like kind of kicked in the gut so many times, and you have this perception of the USDA and their local satellite offices, how do we? Um, 
replenish that relationship between the FSAs, the centralized um, USDA, the satellite FSA and NIFA offices, and our, our rural farmers. And then beyond that, looking at this new generation of people who want to eat healthy, that are focused on food sovereignty and choosing their own food, and um, making sure that they know these resources are available. So there's two gaps on, at the extremes. There's the rural farmers and the, uh, and the technology information gap. And then you have your urban farmers who, I've never done this before, I don't even know to look for the FSA. I don't even know to look on the USDA site. If I pulled the USDA site, I don't even know what to look for. I'm going to just put in random terms and, and start Googling. So let me ask you this question, because this, this ties in with what you're talking about. Sure. We have, I, I was really excited when Marsha Fudge was thrown in the ring for Secretary of Agriculture. As was I. I, I want to know why. What would, having a woman of color in charge of that department, what was exciting you about the changes and the, the lens that she was going to be using to, to run the agency? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, um, Marsha Fudge, I've known her and of her for many years because she is, she was a former national president for my sorority, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. So I knew of her when I was in college. I knew of her many years ago. So I'm familiar with her, you know, um, intelligence, her professionalism and, and her, um, her strategic approach. So I had, I'm fortunate in that I, I know, you know, the values of my sorority. I know how she operated as a, a you know, national president and as leadership with our sorority. And then I, I, as a result, I've kind of kept track of how she's operating as a congressional leader. So that really was foundational of all the candidates. I know her the most um, because of my history. Um, with her lens of being a black woman, and of course she has uh, intimate knowledge with regards to agriculture, which is why I think she would be an excellent choice. Um, you know, I think she uh, would look at food in a different way. And that's what food sovereignty is all about. It's about, um, you know, giving people choices. And as an African-American community, um, two main areas where our, uh, our will, our sovereignty has been taken away from us has to do with our parenting choices and um, ability to make choices, the best choices for our children. And, um, and then also when it comes to food and, and what's available to us as far as food choices. Um, part of that's just residual from all the land loss that we've seen where, you know, you look in 19, you know, um, 20, 1920, 17% of, um, you know, farmers were African-American farmers or, you know, land was owned by African-American farmers too. Now um, we only have like 1.2% of farmers are African-American farmers. Um, so I think she'll come with that perspective of one, you know, black people, we have always fed America. We have fed America for centuries, even if, whether you're from the uh, Caribbean and, and the diaspora, um, you know, we, because of the um, history of, you know, uh, started with enslavement and, um, you know, the, the, um, the trafficking of, of bodies, which became known as enslavement. Uh, as a result of that, we have that historical relationship. So understanding that means understanding the trauma associated with that, um, that, that relationship. I think she'll bring in that perspective of how do we press restart on 
our relationship as a culture with with food and and harvesting food and and cre the creation of food. Food doesn't come from a supermarket; it comes from the earth, the soil, um, animals, etc., and so on. So, I, with Marsha Fudge, I think she'll bring all those perspectives together. And besides that, when you line her up, um, you know, uh, with the other candidates, she has she is the superior um, intelligence and and background, skill, experience. I'm not saying superior to the other um, candidates, but she hangs right in there with the other candidates. And I would have every confidence in her ability to make decisions. Um, I think she also shows um, excellent um, focus and discretion um, when she's selecting her teams. If you look at the people she surrounds herself with, um, it's based on ethical reasons for selection. And, you know, again, when you're electing someone or appointing someone, you really have to think about who would they choose to be their board, their cabinet, their support. And I have every confidence that she won't make choices just based on race. That um, and, and again, as a housing, um, the HUD director, it's the same. You know, we, we still have the same benefits of her background and experience. So, yes, I agree with you. I was very excited about um, I call her Soror, Soror Marsha Fudge, uh, Congresswoman Marsha Fudge being in that role, really changing it from the inside and out. I have a number of friends who work currently for the USDA in, in DC. Um, and I think even thinking about those individuals and their opportunities for um, career development, I think that would be very positive. Um, making mm -hmm. sure that we retain the talent at the USDA um, of the people who know what they're doing. One thing that struck me when I worked for the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services is that's like probably one of the smartest departments I've ever worked for because those scientists know their stuff. And many of them have been doing it for been their same role or like similar roles for decades and decades. So to lose that talent is a huge loss to like to society. So we need to create a structure or an infrastructure that we retain that talent. We also allow for them to um, build a bridge with the new um, new employees, the entry level people coming in, so that we don't see this um, brain drain um, because people are dissatisfied. And I think with you know the the current administration, I'm talking about the Trump administration. I think that was a huge risk based on his policies and how he approached things. That people in their dissatisfaction, uh, we lost some talent there. There's talent that just walked away, or they were replaced. So it's it's also good to see that the the, the current choice um, for for USDA because he does have the history he he served under Obama so I'm not um, mad about that choice yes it is another white male however he does have experience now there have been concerns raised as far as you know um, you know uh, Bayer and Roundup Monsanto relationships and how he treated that aspect of you know, growing things of, of agriculture. Um, I think we know a lot more now about the negative effects of um, uh, of, the, of pesticides and things like that. I think the EPA has a tremendous responsibility with that as well. Um, so I think we should really be having that conversation as we're looking towards the EPA choice because it's the EPA that put out the pesticide list for hemp anyways. So 
we have a new administration coming in. Yeah. Under the under the current administration is where hemp actually became federally legal. And it's managed under the USDA. So under a new administration, what do you think needs to happen for hemp to actually scale as an industry? Because we anyone who's been in the industry for the last two years knows it has been a shit show. Right. And you know, in California, for instance, I mean, we've got probably a 16th of the farmers who put seed in the ground last year doing it this year. And a lot of it is because of failings at the USDA to really give guidelines and then bridge it with the FDA to actually give CBD, which was the product that so many of them were growing for, any kind of regulatory framework, a yes or a no. Can we take it? Can we not? What does the USDA need to do with the hemp industry going forward under the Biden administration to really scale it up, to become the industry we've all been hoping it would be? Yeah, I think the first step is looking at the farm bill and, and developing a new interpretation of it. Um, I think under the current interpretation, the um, USDA's responsibility ends at processing. And I think maybe there's opportunity to kind of like in collaboration with the FDA, maybe. I mean, and all these groups like the FDA, DEA, and USDA, they all have MOUs anyways to work together. But um, really unify around an approach for, you know, post-processing handling. It shouldn't, it's like almost like a slash cut where it's, you know, we, we're only going to talk about and think about um, at, uh, cultivation to processing and stop and whatever happens beyond that, that's not really our business. I think there's opportunity for us to have a more realistic view because that's where, you know, the DEA gets back involved, even they were um, um, written out of this process. Um, the USDA takes the, the DEA is kind of like a safety blanket, like we're afraid to do anything wrong. Um, so I think getting rid of those, um, getting rid of, rid of those handcuffs as far as agencies need to stop approaching cannabis as if they're afraid to do something wrong. Nobody wants to take the hit. And we see this judicially too, um, where we've had, um, you know, cases about hemp or cases about CBD where, you know, the initial judge is afraid to make a, a, a clear decision. So they kick it up to the the higher judge and every all the judges are afraid to be the one to say, you know, this is how it stands. And, and it just takes a whole lot of expenses for cases to be dismissed and things like that. So it's very similar with our what we're seeing with our agencies. Everyone's afraid to move, which is why, you know, our forecasters for industry, um, industry leaders are saying Congress is the only way. So I think USDA will fall right in line with what Congress decides. I think Congress has been warmed up to the point that they are ready to say, we thought we did this in 2014 and really stick by that and say, just so there aren't any, there's no confusion. It is legal. The extracts are legal. All of it is legal as long as you don't exceed this percent. I know we're, we're as an industry, we're, we're kind of lobbying for the 1% standard. So I, I do have to say that we think 1% is more realistic and will lead to um, less loss for our farmers. So where we went wrong, just to be clear, is we use the farmers and, and rode the back of the farmers to get it legal. And then as we've implemented, the farmers are the last ones we think about. So we, we don't think about the fact that they can, if they grow it, where are they gonna sell it? 
well, we have to have a legal structure for them to get that product to um, in, into um, into the market. And we like to just hover around, okay, well, it can be cultivated and not really do the due diligence. So, but let's make sure we free it up so that they can have somewhere where they can sell it. And not an environment like we're seeing in a lot of states where the processors who, again, the licensing cost for processing is expensive. The equipment is expensive. The getting the knowledge is expensive. So you have these processors that's invest, they've invested all this money to be processors and they're picking and choosing which farmers they'll work for work with and for the most part all they want to do is create a vertical anyways and not even work with the other farmers so you have you have these people with processor license that want to be verticals then you have these farmers that are cultivating hoping to sell to a processor when the processors for the most part aren't really that interested they want to be vertically integrated companies so that's that's the situation we're in and that's where we've really messed up our farmers is because we haven't made it where it's it's free for their, them to know this these are different outputs that you can make these are the ways they're legal this is what we want you to do if you're selling this type of hemp if you're selling that type of hemp and and just making it a free and open market for our farmers we again when we are testifying on the senate floors whether it's at the state level or the congressional level we're saying our farmers need this our farmers were devastated we had fires we had floods we had hurricanes we had all this stuff poor farmers they need this and then once it passed we stop thinking about the farmers and, and how they're going to monetize and, and people just run away with it. Um, so I think that's really unfortunate. I think it, it's very disingenuous. And I think it's even more disingenuous where you have a state and they eliminate cottage industry or cottage food law, because that means that that farmer who gets stuck with that crop because the processors want to be a vertical anyways, um, they can't even make a salve. They can't even make something that they can take to the farmer's market. How fair is that? Yeah. All their the only choice they have at this point is to make smokable hemp. And then everybody looks down their nose at the farmer making um, smokable hemp. When you took, when you, you made them like, you know, bells at the ball with a, with a dance card waiting to fill their dance card with these processors. Yeah. Yeah. That was the biggest problem we saw here in California as well. I, I really hope that we can get it together. So uh, my my last question, I really want to give you the time to talk about the thing which is most near and dear to your heart. Mm-hmm. And that is diversity and inclusion in the cannabis industry. Yeah. So you are extremely committed to ensuring that people of color get their fair share of the cannabis pie. Yeah. So I want to know from your perspective, how is the cannabis industry failing people of color and how is it proving to actually be a pioneering industry in terms of diversity and inclusion. So how are we doing really well and where are we failing? Yeah. So um, unfortunately due to um, the the murder of um, Breonna Taylor, the murder of George Floyd, there's a more of a sensitivity to race and culture issues in this country. Um, So um, they didn't die in vain because um, you know, everyone's starting to have conversations that they should have had a long time ago. So we're, we are seeing more diversity, definitely more than when I started. So th- that's positive. Um, I think where we are failing is one, if, when we have our, um, you know, our minority. And again, when I talk about diversity, I, I am passionate about, um, you know, my black community, whether they're from wherever they're from in the diaspora. I'm very passionate and I'm unapologetic about that. 
But when I talk about diversity, I, I do believe in um, advocating for women. I do believe in advocating for people who are disabled. I believe in advocating for our veteran community um, as well, our Hispanic farmers, our Asian farmers as well. Um, I, you can't look at one without looking at the other. So it's really about, you know, I, I definitely believe in Black Lives Matter. I definitely believe in Black Farmers Matter. But I also think that we have to look at it from a holistic perspective as well. And I think where we're falling down, the first thing is, you know, how we educate our, our people, people who are interested in entering the industry, you know, making sure that we are realistic with them. And as an attorney, that's what I do. I say, you know, anyone who wants to work with me, I say, listen, I'll let you pay for an hour, then I'll talk to you. And then we can see at the end of the hour, if you want to go into this industry, how you want to approach this industry, where we're going to look at touching plan activities or ancillary activities. So reality is what people need. And actually, Lauren Hill, one of my favorite singers, she says it is in her Unplugged album. She says fantasy is what people want, but reality is what they need. And that really applies to our um, diverse community in, in cannabis. I think on the other part, on the, the next item is looking at our professionals, our, our professionals of color, our black professionals in cannabis. There is this um, concept or approach where people don't want to pay um, our professionals of color in the industry. They want to take them to coffee. They want to take them to, to have a, a lunch uh, date and then pick their brains. And you and I here, we've spoken a lot about, and you get it too, about picking people wanting to pick your brain is, is disrespectful. And even within my community, I insist that people pay me. I'm going to discount my rates, but you're going to pay me for the knowledge that I have because it didn't come easy. Every plane ticket I bought, every minute that I was away from my kid, um, my paying for my legal education, all that has to be taken into consideration. So I'm not going to be the highest priced attorney, but you are going to pay me no matter what background you come from. So we really have to respect our professionals. And I think that's really important. Next, we have to really call out and expose the straw men situations where, as we're seeing an emergence of all, of all these equity programs, now, um, you know, I get calls of, uh, you know, for people who are mainstream, a lot of white males saying, um, hey, I want to work with you because I'm really uh, passionate about equity. Well, you want me to access equity-based funds through you. You're not saying you're passionate about it and you want to help me access equity-based funds from my community, you're saying because you put my face or my name on your application, then you access the funds, and then I will get a piece of that, and probably for a limited period of time, where you go on to um, into your whole business trajectory of being successful, and I, you don't take me all the way to the end of that journey. So I think that's a huge issue um, with regards to diversity inclusion. Um, of course, we have to talk about access to capital. Um, we're very passionate about the Safe Banking Act and, and uh, cannabis for the most part is um, based on private funding. And, you know, private funding leads to often um, uh, these contracts that aren't fair to everybody. And um, when people can't afford legal counsel, they'll sign on the dotted line without understanding. I've gotten calls from so many people who like, I signed this operating agreement, I signed this um, uh, contract, can you look it over for me? Well, it's a little late after the fact, and now to get what you get back what was yours, you're gonna have to pay tens of thousands of dollars instead of paying me a few hundred dollars, you know, to review it ahead of time. So those are, those are like some of the big challenging um, 
points. I want to, you know, highlight um, good actors like yourself who, you know, you have your women empowered in cannabis group, but you also have, you know, women empowered in can cannabis with, um, you know, a minority focus, a diverse focus, um, and, and engaging with professionals such as myself, Ms. Kindness, um, and, and other professionals in the industry. And I applaud you for that because I know it's a choice. I know it's a choice. It's, I know it's intentional. Um, so every little bit helps. Every, um, every action uh, to create a more diverse industry is really important. Um, it's just pe getting people to recognize that and not trying to, people not trying to slide in through the diversity door without um, trying to have long-term benefits to the people that they're working with. So um, those are the main things that I think we, we do need to change. You know, I, I also, you know, I, th I think we do need to highlight and recognize the businesses that do support diversity and inclusion. You know, I always say that like the NOCO Hemp Group, um, with Morris and, and Kate and, and uh, Lizzie, you know, they put me on a stage um, before a lot of people would and on a, a stage of influence where I wasn't just um, talking about diversity. I'm not on just the diversity panel, but they put me on a stage where, you know, people would be surprised that um, I'm a black woman in the hemp industry when at the time, you know, the hemp industry was stereotypically white males with long beards. Um, so I always, you know, I never forget where I come from. I never forget to recognize the people who are doing things in the right way and showing me my proper respect and allowing me to role model what I want to see in the industry. Uh, well, this industry is very, very fortunate to have you, you, to have you, to have your heart, to have your presence and your genius mind. I mean, you know more about the hemp industry than most people that I've spoken to. And I also love that it's surprising that you're a woman of color and that that's not the role that most people would see you in. But, you know, your desire, you've mentioned it a few times on this interview today, you love to learn yeah. and you just immerse yourself in whatever it is, whether it's your law degree, whether it's hemp, whether it's agriculture. And we are so fortunate to have you in our community. I'm just, I just adore the I, I love you right back. Um, I'm, I'm now a dietary supplement attorney, too, because I see where the industry is going. When I got into agriculture, it was a little ahead of the curve, but I could help the smaller players understand that, hey, we want it to be legal. But now that we're legal, we got to get all our ducks in a row for as regard to agriculture. And I had kind of taken the lead on educating myself so I could educate the community. I'm doing the same thing with dietary supplements. When the cannabinoids are considered dietary supplements up to a certain THC level, I want to be ready. I want to be able to talk through um, different delivery uh, models, different um, systems, different organizations that are doing that type of work. And I, I would like to make a plug for my company, Cannabisiac, which is an incubator accelerator for small businesses. Um, that's www.cannabisiac, C-A-N-N-A-B-I-Z-I-A-C.com. Um, we have an events page. We do four core events every month. They've been free up until this point. For members, they're going to continue to be free. But um, a couple of the events will be a nominal amount because we always want to be inclusive. Um, so we do a, a cannabis uh, cafe early morning, first Monday of the month, second Wednesday of the month. And we'll do a hemp happy hour. We just had it yesterday at 6 p.m. Eastern. We do a cannabis university this month, it's next week with um, Marilyn Mather, who was the founder of Patients Out of Time, the first CLEs 
in cannabis and they were for nurses. So she is a legend in the field. And then we have our book of the month also next week due to the Christmas holiday, um, which is um, going over Dr. Joseph Rosado's, um, and he's from Puerto Rico, um, his text, um, Hope and Healing, which is about um, just cannabis overall and, and his experience as a physician. Um, so uh, we're going to do that in English and Spanish, 5 p.m. next Friday in Espanol, and then 7 p.m. we're going to do the English version. So um, CannabisYak.com, join us. These events are free this month, and we're going to finish the year with our New Year's Eve virtual bash. Um, we're giving out plenty of golden tickets to the virtual bash, but it is a $25 charge if you do not get a golden ticket. Well, thank you, Cheryl, so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Oh, anytime. You are welcome to come back anytime. It's it's always an enlightening conversation. Well, keep being the light. I'm glad you have your own show. You deserve it. All the success in the world, you deserve that. I love to see your network growing and may it continue to grow in 2021. Thank you. And thank you, ladies, for tuning in. If you haven't yet joined the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, go to our website, womenempoweredincannabis.com and find your group. Supply Chain, CBD and Hemp, and the recently launched Women of Color Group. WEIC is a community that provides resources, connections, events, and content to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis or curious about taking a leap into the industry. Join us next week for another conversation with women leading in cannabis. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.